Hey, welcome to Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. I will be your host for this podcast. In Gospel Rant, we're looking through key passages in Romans and unpacking the many microaggressors that Paul brings up. What do we mean? Here's a definition of microaggression. It's a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities. Whether intentional or unintentional, they communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults towards any group, particularly culturally marginalized groups. So in Paul's case, in Romans, it's towards those who still haven't understood that strictly due to what Jesus did for Christians 2,000 years ago, God technically has to love us. He does love us. He adores us as we are. He loves us as much as the Father, loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father as we are, not as we should be or could be. We can't add to that or take away from it. See, right now in heaven, God looks down at you, and you are not a disappointment to him, and he's saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, no matter what side of the government you fall on, just saying, right? We we are not motivated to earn God's pleasure by doing certain things, by putting forward certain governments, and so forth. So in the case of Romans 13, the microaggressor is pointed towards those who read this chapter today as this religious, formulaic passage of the law uh, for Christians, uh, guilt trips and shame trips, that we're supposed to judge current power structures politically and, uh, and, and do it with all of our effort. You know what I mean. So Paul is having, again, to offend all those well-meaning Christians who are adding to the simple, uncluttered gospel. And in Romans, he's just, he's hammering people with microaggressions then, and, and I'm suggesting today, evangelicalism is riddled with well-meaning Christian teachers and preachers who shame people because of the government um, and, and shame Christians in the government. I, I, look, I just, I just don't think it furthers the kingdom. So today I want to vent, I want to rant about a familiar passage in Romans 13. This is the go-to chapter for pretty much all comments about what a Christian government, uh, righteous government should be, what it should look like. Uh, and ideally how it should be, and how we Christians should respond as Jesus-inspired citizens. I mean, do we rebel? Do we throw rocks? Do we, right? So my rant is not about the text per se as the boneheaded, and I mean this with all due respect, the boneheaded way that we Christians have historically interpreted and politically applied Romans 13. And I've, I believe that it's just rarely been helpful or, or doable or, frankly, biblical. So, Romans 13, 1 is an example. Paul writes, Everyone should submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Well, what has often been done with this passage is to extend a blanket statement to Christians from the pulpit, right, that we should submissively submit without questioning uh, to anything and everything the governments do or say. This is our duty before God, we're told from the pulpit, We should lower our heads and be supportive even when the government is oppressive and racist and unjust. Uh, Here's a historical example. Just before the Revolutionary War, there was a revival in eastern Canada, a Baptist missionary, uh, many people saved. But based upon his preaching and uh, preaching in passages such as Romans 13, the eastern Canada colonies or colony refused to join the revolution against England. They thought that Jesus wouldn't approve. There would have been 14 colonies, except 
One of the colonies understood that even though King George's government was arguably being unjust, unjust, oppressive, and unfair, it just wasn't what a Christian should do. We shouldn't rebel, right? Because God establishes government, and the rest is history. But is that what Paul means? I don't think so at all. But a couple of comments, contextual, historical. First, in Paul's day, man, they didn't know anything about a democracy. The government's authority was absolute. Whether it was evil or not evil, it was absolute. It wasn't a democracy. The people had zero voice. They had no vote. The emperor had the only voice. And often the government was brutal, capricious, and destructive. Second, there's the example of Jesus. While he was not trying to lead an open rebellion against the Roman government, which, by the way, he wasn't, he wasn't silent either. He was hardly submissive to the church authorities, right? We'll come back to that. And third, man, you just don't have to go any further than the prophets in the Old Testament who regularly railed against ungodly secular authorities. They were obedient to God. They gave the message and often were punished for it. I think that's Paul's point. Here's what he means, and I think he's going to clear it up later, but let me just toss it out here for you to be processing and pushing back on, and uh, you, right? So here we go. Submitting is not a blanket bowing to the rights of kings. You have a voice, you have an opinion, and sometimes actions, action is driven out of love. So there remains being an opposition party, no matter where you stand in the power food chain. There remains need for justice and continually leaning into justice leaning into protecting the powerless. But when you do rebel, when you do criticize government, know two things. One, the government has a sword and it's going to cost you. And second, God is judicially responsible over all governments. So all governments and governors must answer for their actions and motivations to the highest of all judges. God, we can be assured that we're not just helpless victims with no path to justice. We may not get justice in our lifetime, but there will be justice because there's a God who still is on the throne. Though for a time, there may be unjust, uncaring, and unloving policies and politics that still reign. Only for a time. All right. And so Romans 13, 2. Consequently, Paul writes, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. So, if and when you rebel, for conscious sake, for loving sake, know that it's going to cost you. You might bring judgment on yourself from the governing authorities. You, too, must answer to two sets of authority. But the one that ultimately counts is God's bench. So, either way, whether you sit silently by when evil governments oppress the helpless and innocent, or whether you stand up and are martyred, you must answer to the ultimate king, God. You choose. But do not use Romans 13 as an excuse for sitting on the sidelines, silence, cowardice, and not acting in love. We have a higher calling. And let let me skip for a moment to Paul's summary of of chapter 13, which envelops this chapter into Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. I mean, that's the point. That's That's how you interpret the government. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be, Paul says, it, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself, citizen. 
uh, verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor, right? And he's talking about you, citizen, but also governments. And therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So ultimately, uh, the righteous government should love its neighbors. Should. And love is the goal, not just any move, um, but love for the unlovable, the outsider, the beat up, the those who make us feel uncomfortable, those who, in matter of fact, even those who do not want our help, right? Sometimes love requires us to stand up for the helpless against the current government. But it may crush us. Love is sometimes, most often, not appreciated by power. Let me say it again. Love is often not appreciated by power. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. And the, the right is agathos, which is commendable, good. But for those who do wrong, kakos, which is being socially reprehensible, bad, wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, right? Praise you, admire you, approve of you. Well, really? I mean, come on. Look around. Paul, Christians, we all know this isn't always true. Rarely is it true, and today for sure, but also in Paul's day in Rome. Look, Paul was persecuted, uh, put in jail, eventually murdered, martyred, and he did good. And not to mention Jesus, he is the only one who ever did agathos, right, good, and he was never committed by the government. He was eventually martyred. So if you want to take this passage to say that it is some form of formulaic biblical truth that holds uh, authority over us, good luck. If you're loyal and keep doing loyal and good things for the government, you will have a blessed good life. I mean, really, you're kidding me, right? That's... Really? (laughs) All too often, evil governments, threatened governments, hold terror for those who do right. In fact, it just seems like it's often the case. All right. Um, It's easy to tear down a passage. How do we build it up? What, What do we do with such a passage? Well, simply this. And it goes back to how we see biblical wisdom literature, Proverbs, for instance, uh, when we read a passage like 22.6 of Proverbs, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Look, every parent knows that's not 100% true across the board. It's a wisdom statement. Um, they would have understood that. All other things equal. It's not a formula. All other things equal. If you raise your child well in a loving, secure context, uh, there's good attunement when they're one year old. You teach them good principles. You model it. You talk to them. You, you, you're, you're their best friend and, and you have their back. Chances are pretty good, but nowhere near perfect that they will end up doing better than the person who has lived in a dangerous, unloving context with abusive parents, right? It's not a formula, though. Like two plus two is four. There's always exceptions. Wisdom literature says, look, this is the wise thing to do. And to not do it has obvious consequences, but it's a wisdom statement, not a godly prophetic promise, right? We all have wisdom statements. We have them today. Um, All right, here we go. A penny saved is a penny earned, right? Maybe it's a bad example, but I'm going to go with it. Well, yeah. Okay, that's a wise thing. You save money. You don't spend everything, right? It's foolish to spend every penny, 
that penny you save could lose its value because of inflation or be stolen or is invested in a scam of some kind or in an investment that tanks or, right, fill in the blank. But it's wisdom, in spite of all of that, it's wise to save versus spending everything. All right, wisdom. So your best chance of living a secure life in autocratic Rome, capricious Rome, so that you can do more loving for your neighbors for a longer time is to live peacefully with your government, uh, with the policemen, with the governing authorities. You pay your taxes, right? You can do that. You pay your taxes, even though you might disagree with what the government does with it. But if you see a neighbor that you love being prosecuted, persecuted, oppressed racially or socioeconomically, sexually, or any other unfairness or injustice, it's not loving to be quiet. Just know, though, when you speak up, you'll probably be persecuted, too. Loving is often hated by power. Loving is often hated by power. And Paul is speaking in generalities, right? Civil disobedience is in, right? I mean, it's it's okay, but it must be done wisely in alignment with God's word, and it must be manifested with God's perfect love. Civil disobedience must manifest, for Christians, must manifest God's perfect love. It must look like Jesus, uh, Romans 13, 14. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Look, I like uh, 13, 14 as an overarching summary. Clothe yourself with Jesus. Okay, I I don't want this to be just a churchy bumper sticker uh, that, you know, what what? What does that look like? What, What does that mean? Lean into Jesus, clothe yourself with Jesus. It's a metaphor, right? Uh, you, you put on Jesus' cloak and skin so that you look like him, meaning act, do what Jesus did in this case, act like him, love people the way he did, right? And the way you do that, we know, is to ask the Holy Spirit to give you his love so that he can love other people through you. So that's the idea. When you clothe yourself with Jesus, you can't do it. The Holy Spirit's passion is to make you do it. So ask. All right, that's a different rant. So when people see you, when you're filled to the fullness of the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, they recall him. They go, oh, yeah, you look familiar. Oh, you look like Jesus. So what did he do? Well, his reputation wasn't a nice, quiet, peacekeeping soul who didn't rattle cages. It wasn't. Wherever he went, there was chaos and disruption in the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Power didn't like him. They felt threatened by him. They didn't appreciate the dust he kicked up when he entered a region. They just didn't. And remember, here's an example that we were celebrating right now in in Easter season, the triumphal entry, which, by the way, wasn't a triumphal entry at all, but that's another rant for another time. It was huge social disruption in a powder keg, Jerusalem. And eventually he was arrested, arrested for the charge of insurrection, among other charges, insurrection, right? How could... His love be interpreted as an insurrection? Well, government power is threatened by such love. So he should have read Romans 13. Then he would have known, don't do the triumphal entry, right? He would have lived a much longer life, right? No, of course not. We're supposed to follow Jesus. So what was his mission? He went where where love said, where it was uncomfortable, and he touched and lifted up outsiders those who were oppressed by the governments, the outcasts, the untouchables, those who were treated with racism and 
right? He did it on the Sabbath. So religiously he offended. He cursed the temple. Man, that's disruptive. That's not Romans 13, the way we typically interpret it, right? This is this is the nature of God. He doesn't go where he is wanted and where it was. it is comfortable for him to go. He, he, matter of fact, most often he goes where he's not wanted. He goes and lifts up his enemies. So uh, this is the positive take on what Romans 13 is all about. It's not about the importance of Christians being silent sheep and submissive at all. We're supposed to be radically out there loving and supporting those that the governments of all time would rather keep silent. It's just the opposite. This is what love does. It embraces those that the governments of all eras reject, much to the chagrin of the powers that be. Our actions, if we do them like Jesus uh, would do them, looking like Jesus with his cloak on us, it'll make any and every government really look bad. Does that make sense? Jesus made that government look bad. Jesus makes any government look bad. And any government would be threatened by the love of Jesus. Every government would be threatened by the love of Jesus manifested. So uh, let me bring up one topic that's always brought up in a Bible study and discussion group on, on Romans 13. What about abortion? What does Romans 13 say about the Christian's responsibility to the, the abortion issue? Is Romans 13 saying that we must not object or that we should object? And if so, how should we object? Should we throw stones at abortion clinics? Should we break windows? Should we picket? Should we shoot? Do we picket them angrily and judgmentally in the name of Jesus? Do we abuse the women as they go in and out or, or not? So uh, let me set the context. Let me assume that you are among those who see abortion as murder, as I strongly do. What does put on the cloak of Jesus look like in this case? Okay, now, if you're listening to this and you don't see abortion as murder, uh, okay, uh, but but uh, listen to this and, and see if you can apply it in other areas of your life. And by the way, you're wrong. <laughs> you can push back. That's the whole point of a gospel rant. So I don't recall Jesus ever throwing stones at anyone. Do you? Matter of fact, I think he condemned people who threw stones, right? Do you ever see Jesus yelling or shouting down powers that be uh, even abusive secular powers, maybe at the temple uh, but I think that's different. By the way, even though he's the only one who could have uh, stepped up against Pilate and, and Rome and so forth. In fact, he's the only one who can throw stones. He says so, right? I mean, all right. My suggestion, here we go, is that Jesus's love would have been manifested today, here we go, by walking alongside that mother who is convinced for whatever reason that abortion is her only option or her best option. Right? I think Jesus would look into her eyes, lovingly, adoringly, communicating to her that he loves her as she is, not as she should be, making her feel adored, secured, and even hopeful, even if she continues to do what she wants to do. It's his perfect love that casts out fear and whatever she's afraid of, right? And the judge, Jesus will not judge because he is going to take her justice on his shoulders for all of her crimes, including this one, but not just this one. His love is ridiculously powerful. It's life-changing. It can change her. It can change her family. It can change her choice. His love can transform clinic doctors, politicians, 
others who are cynically benefiting from the practice. And most importantly, I believe this is to be absolutely true, though I can't support it biblically by a verse here or there. I believe that the murdered child actually goes straight to heaven and to the loving arms of the good, good father. I do. Why do I passionately believe that? Because I'm getting to know the immensity of the love of my heavenly father. If he can love me that much, oh my goodness, he's going to love the infants, right? He will. Just saying. All right, back to Romans 13. It's all about love. It's not about governmental and political guidelines, which party is accurate, which one's wrong. The prime directive is loving others like Jesus did. If you cross ways with the government, it has a sword and may kill you, (laughs) right? But good news, it answers to a higher king and you will have justice. So you're good. You'll be taken care of. You'll get a fair trial in his court, even though you might be dead. And he will ask you, uh, I mean, metaphorically speaking, did you reflect the love of my son or did you hate? Did you do reactionary anger? Uh, did you, were you murderous? Did you hurt people in the name of my son? Uh, did you love and honor those that I adore or did you try to hurt them? I mean, do you even know those that my son died for? <laughs> okay, enough ranting. Uh, you can push back. Um, I could be wrong. Nah, I don't think so. Anyway, push back if you'd like. That's cool. Wait, uh, one last comment. This is also the go-to passage on corporal punishment, the death penalty, Romans 13, 4. I just want to say one little rant about that. Here's what Paul writes. For he is God's servant, meaning the government, to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring judgment, a punishment upon the wrongdoer. All right, uh, so Paul is, is this Paul, let me ask it as a question, is this Paul giving the government the authority of the death penalty? I don't think this is crystal clear at all. Here's my take on this, and let me rant. And I have strong opinions, by the way, about the death penalty. I just don't think that this is the passage that helps one way or the other. And not only for the reasons mentioned above, but here's the thing. When this metaphor of having the sword doesn't, really refer to the death penalty when you look at Rome and what they did for corporal punishment in ancient Rome. Here's a, here's a quote. Punishment for crimes, whether slave or free, were usually carried out in rapid succession. For minor offenses, there might be a severe beating, being flogged or branded on the forehead. More severe crimes might receive the punishment of putting out the eyes, ripping out the tongue, cutting off the ears. The death penalty included being buried alive, impaling, and of course, crucifixion. The Romans did not hesitate to torture before putting someone to dead, uh, to death. One punishment was sewing a bound prisoner in a heavy sack with, with a snake, a rooster, a monkey, and a dog, and then throwing the sack into the river. And one can only imagine the agony inside. This punishment was usually reserved for patricide, our son who killed his father. <clears throat> did you hear anything about a sword? So the government has a cross, a whip, a grave, a bunch of things, but even monkeys, but no evidence that the sword was a metaphor for corporal punishment. I think it makes more sense to see this as a Roman military military response to possible rebellion against the government, right? And and Paul talks about the wrongdoer. I mean, is that is he saying that if you respond in love that you're a wrongdoer? See, I don't I don't think so. I think it's sloppy exegesis, uh, lazy exegesis, 
and poor investigation of historical context. Now, just to be fair and be clear, I'm not arguing that corporal punishment is wrong or right or evil or good. I have strong opinions on that issue, but not based upon this verse very much. All I'm saying and ranting about that this passage, the supposed go-to passage, is just not on point. I don't think it's really Paul teaching definitively about the death penalty. It's just not so clear to me. That dialogue needs to continue uh, from other places in the Bible. All right. Well, that's enough for Romans 13. Again, push back, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Love to hear what you think. Uh, You can rant back at me. That's cool. That's the way this works. And again, you can disagree with me, but you'd be wrong. All right. (laughs) All right. See you next time on the Gospel Rant. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.